This way, God's uh, not only concerned with the saving of souls. He's concerned with our bodies. He's concerned with economics. And so, uh, he feeds people, hungry people. And he expects us to do it as well. So today we come to the feeding of the 5,000. This is the only miracle that's repeated in all four Gospels. The nobleman's son isn't repeated in the four Gospels. The raising of Lazarus isn't repeated in the four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that Jesus does that's repeated in all four Gospels, which means it must be very important. And it was very significant to the early church, so much so that each writer of a Gospel included this story uh, in his Gospel. So here's how we're going to outline our passage this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the setting. And we're going to look at the location, we're going to look at the timing of the story, okay? the setting. Second of all, we'll look at the situation. What is the problem or the crisis that confronts Jesus? And then finally, we'll look at the solution. And uh, then there's like a little epilogue toward the end of the story. So let's look at the setting. And notice the location, okay? Look at verse 1. We're in John chapter 6 and verse 1. After these things, after what things? After all the things that Jesus did in Jerusalem, okay? Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So there's a location change. He goes from Jerusalem in the south, about 80 miles north, into the province of Galilee, and he crosses the Sea of Galilee. Notice, however, that it's also called something else. It's called the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, only is it called this in John's Gospel. Now, who was Tiberius? He was Caesar during Jesus' ministry. And Tiberius, or Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, uh, controlled everything. He even controlled the water. And next week, we're going to see Jesus walks on this water that Tiberius controls. We're going to see who really controls the water. It's not Caesar. It's Jesus. And so here it's called Tiberius, and he was a dictator, and a ruthless dictator. And... Uh, he took the title Savior. He was called Savior. Jesus was called Savior. He was called Lord. And so here we see that Jesus is an opponent of this guy, Tiberius, who even has a sea named after him. You know, which is very interesting. It's not, not really a sea. It's really a lake. <laughs> but uh, John calls it a sea. And we're going to see why he calls it a sea in a minute. It's very interesting. Uh, so then what happens in verse 1, it says that he, uh, he went over the Sea of Galilee. Luke tells us that he went from the western shore to the eastern shore of the lake and landed in what Luke calls Bethsaida. It's the hometown of Philip. And we're going to see Philip. Philip's going to be introduced here uh, in, in a moment. So today it's called the Golan Heights. That's where Jesus goes. Remember, what, you know what the Golan Heights is? Golan Heights, in modern times, was controlled by Syria. And then Syria lost it to Israel during the Six Days War in 1967. So now it's part of Israel. And it's occupied territory. 
And this is one of the reasons that there's a lot of controversy in the Middle East today, is because Israel won that property in a war. And they won it back. Syria wants it back. And the Palestinians want it back. So that's where this takes place. That's the location. Now look at verse 2, what it says. Then a great multitude followed him. That's Jesus. Jesus and his disciples actually go across the, the lake in a boat, but we know from one of the other Gospels that thousands of people circumvent the lake. They run around the, the eastern or the western shore and the northern shore of the lake, and they end up following Jesus to the other side. They can't get across the lake, so they follow him by way of land. Why did they follow him? Look what it says in verse 2. Because they saw his signs, which he had performed, on those who were diseased, such as the healing of the nobleman's son when Jesus was back in this area in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so they're following Jesus because of the signs that he did. Now we already know from chapter 2 that when people follow Jesus because of signs, they really don't have a commitment. They're just curious. And Jesus would not commit himself to those kinds of people. You're all familiar with that? If you've been with this, you're familiar with that. And so look at Jesus' reaction. It's just exactly what we would expect. Verse 3. And Jesus went up on a mountain. See, he departs from them. And there he sat with his disciples. So we have a sea and we have a mountain. We have multitudes. We have Jesus is going to feed these multitudes in a moment. That should make, if a Jew was reading this, that should make them think of another sea that was crossed. And another mountain that a prophet went up. And another time when people were fed with bread. Can you remember that event? What was that? What happened then? Yeah, it was the Red Sea and, and God sent manna down from heaven. Remember how all that? So this is, maybe that's why the word sea is used. And he wants to emphasize that he goes up on a mountain. Hey, this is not a real mountain. This is like a plateau. <laughs> if you're over there, you'll see it's not a tall mountain. Uh, but... John decides to call it a mountain because he wants to bring your attention back to another event, recall, make you recall another event when God's prophet supernaturally fed the masses of people. So that's the location. Okay? Now, look at the season, the timing, the setting. Verse 4. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. When did Moses feed those people with the manna? After they crossed the sea. Which was the start of an event called the Passover. Remember that? They had to eat a meal before they were delivered. Notice how all this language is relating back to Moses. And that miracle. So that people will see that uh, this is very similar. A similar event. And so, by the way, this is the second time Passover is mentioned in John's Gospel. It says it's the time of the Passover. Uh, Passover was mentioned back in chapter 2 when Jesus was in Jerusalem. And he went there for the Passover and he cleaned out the temple. Remember that? He turned the tables. So this is Passover number 2. Passover number 1 would have happened a year ago. This is Passover number 2. What happens to Passover number 3? Jesus crucified. <laughs> John is the only gospel writer that tells us about three years in Jesus' ministry. 
All the other gospel writers only give us one year in Jesus' ministry. But John gives us all three years in Jesus' ministry. So Passover is a big theme for John. So what we have here is this is the Passover season. It's very near. Uh, notice these people are not flocking down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, are they? They're staying up north. Now, northern territory is sort of like an unclean territory. You know, it's not the most uh, a gorgeous place to live, and these people are probably not great practicing Jews. And so they're not heading, they're not going to take a pilgrimage south where they're just staying there in the north. So this is the, the setting, okay? Now I want you to look at the situation. Look at the crisis that Jesus faces in verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes. And seeing a great multitude coming toward him. Uh, Mark's gospel says that it was getting late. And Jesus saw the great crowds and he was moved with compassion upon them. So Jesus looks up and he sees all these multitudes of people. And then look what he does. He said to Philip, whose hometown is Bethsaida. He said to Philip, what shall we buy? Or where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Where may we buy bread that these may eat? So Jesus asked a question. And what is the question? It's what? Where? Do you see that? The question is where? Now, what is Philip's answer? You're going to see that in verse 7. But first, he gives us, John gives us an explanation. He says, but... This he said to test Philip. He asked that question to put Philip to a test. Because he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. But he said to Philip, putting him to the test, where should we get something to, where should we go and buy food? Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He's like a master chess player. He's about two steps ahead of everybody. He doesn't care what you do. <laughs> he knows what he's going to do. And he's putting Philip to the test just to see how Philip will respond. And many times he puts us to the test. I believe that. And he does it to teach us a lesson. Jesus isn't asking a question to get information. He already knows the information. He's doing it to test Philip so that when Philip fails this test, if he ever gets into a situation like this again, he'll know exactly what to do the next time. Okay? So that's what we have. So now we come to the solution. Okay? This is the solution to the crisis. And so he says to Philip, well, where should we buy bread? And here's the solution. Solution number one. This is human solution number one. Okay? Here's Philip's response. I love this. He said, 200 denarii worth of bread isn't sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. And he doesn't answer Jesus' question. Jesus' question was what? Where? What's his question? How does he answer? We don't have enough money. That's a non-answer. Do you know people like that? Yes, where can we do this? Nah, what? It won't work. Where? Phil answers, how much? See, Jesus doesn't ask how much, does it? 
No, he's telling him how much. Jesus asked where. Philip says how much. Jesus didn't ask how much. So uh, what kind of answer is this? What do you think this... And what can you learn about Philip from this? You know, Robert Schiller was a possibility thinker. You know? Norman Vincent Peale believed in the power of positive thinking. Philip is just the opposite. He's an impossibility thinker. He's the most negative of all the 12 apostles. He's one of the, he's a dollar and cents man. Maybe you're like, maybe you're married to a husband. That's like, uh, a dollar and cents man. He looks at the problem. He sizes up the situation. He looks at the resources and he concludes it just won't work. Your question isn't even valid. <laughs> even if we knew where to buy it, we don't have enough money to buy it. Now, what is he doing? I call this human solution number one. It's really a non-solution because he doesn't add God into the equation. He's looking at it from purely a materialistic standpoint, uh, a world on a totally worldly level, and I'm afraid that many of us do the exact same thing. We're in a situation, we're hunting for a solution, and we don't bring God into the equation, and as a result, we say it won't work, and we miss possibilities all the time. So, Jesus was testing. Now, I'm a, I'm a teacher, and some of you are teachers, or have been teachers. And even if you're not, I think you'll be able to handle this assignment that I'm going to give you. I want you to give Philip a grade, because he's, he's been given a test. What grade are you going to give him? Yeah, you're going to give him an F. I mean, that, there's no doubt. This is a no-brainer. Even, even in a society like in the Denton school system, where if you fail your test, you can take it over and over and over and over and over again. You've been following that story? It's a great story, isn't it? So no one's feelings are hurt. I think Phil fails the test. Now, what we have here, but that's really not the story. The story is we fail the test, too. When we look at our resources, or we look at our bodies, and we look at the situation, and we look at the people that are sick, and we say, oh, they're just failing. There's nothing they can do. Richard's father, we thought he was we're gonna lose. Did we this man celebrating his seventy fifth birthday and he's kissing and dancing with his wife? You see, we, we need to uh, I hope it's his wife. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so we we oftentimes fail this test as well. So now we come to human solution number two. Look at verse eight. Now one of the disciples, Andrew, and he's always identified this way. Simon Peter's brother. He's not the guy who's not really that important. Said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. Now, Jesus hasn't asked Andrew a question. You saw in that other verse it says he asked Philip specifically a question. Philip was under obligation to give an answer. Andrew steps up and he volunteers an answer. And here's his solution. His solution is, there's a kid here with uh, five loaves and two small fish. Now, we know there are 5,000 people here. In fact, if I said, here's two fish and five loaves, and we're going to see they're flat loaves. Okay, what kind of loaves are they? Does it say what kind of loaves they are? Barley loaves. Barley was the grain of the poor people. What, other, what else does it say about those loaves? Anything else? 
five barley loaves and small fish, two small fish, kippers, sardines. Okay? And the loaves, probably during Passover season, could have been leavened bread. Would be like crackers, matzah. We call it matzah today, right? So now we have how many people do we have in this bed? 120, 30 people here. If I said we're going to have, we're going to feed everybody, and here's what we got. I got a can of sardines, but they only have two sardines in it, and I've got five tortillas. <laughs> what kind of solution? I call this an airhead response. This is, I mean, you can't get a dumber response than this. <laughs> But he's not being put to the test. <laughs> so this is a volunteer answer. Now, one thing that you can tell when you look at Andrew, he's a people person because he observes a kid. Most adults do not look at children. But Andrew is a people person, and he sees this child, and he sees this child's resources. Okay? And he recognizes that the resources really do not match the need because at the end of verse 9 he says this. He says, but what are they among so many? Now my question is, why would you even bring it up to begin with? You have 5,000 people.